Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In 2000, the Centers for Disease Control estimated that one out of every 150 children born in 1992 fell somewhere on the autism spectrum. In 2014, the CDC estimated estimate rose to one in every 68 children born qualified for that diagnosis. The diagnosis of autism indicates a wide range of behavior traits that lead to difficulty acclimating socially, academically, and occupationally. Parents often share stories of trying to get educators and healthcare providers to cooperate in developing an effective program for their children who have autism. Today we're going to talk about what does work for these families as well as some of the frustrations. We'll look at the success stories and lessons learned from the obstacles facing parents. But first we're going to talk about autism itself. Joining us is Rebecca Mann. She's the Vice President of Operations for NHS Education and Autism Services, a provider of care and services to people with special needs. Uh, Ms. Mann, welcome to the program. Good morning. Also joining us on the phone is Regina Wall, Director of the Bureau of Autism Services at the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services. Ms. Wall, welcome to the program. Good morning. And we're going to be joined in just a few minutes by uh, two groups of parents uh, who have children who have been diagnosed with autism, and we'll hear their stories, their experiences, learn about their children in just a few minutes. But we want to provide some background. April is Autism Awareness Month, and uh, I think that society as a whole has become much more aware of autism, especially when you hear those statistics from the CDC, one in 68 children. But uh, Rebecca, man, let me start with you, this is something that even though people may be familiar with autism, they may not know what it is. What is autism? So autism is a developmental delay that affects um, children in being able to process and, and make sure that they have um, the ability to access their natural community. So the developmental delay, uh, sometimes we will see um, delays in speech and social um, communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how is it diagnosed? And uh, for, for, forgive me if I'm incorrect here, but is diagnosed the correct word? It is. Um, so, most times children see a healthcare provider who does a variety of assessments to find out what the autism diagnosis um, to give that to a child. The autism diagnosis has criteria in the DSM, which shows DSM. Um, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, okay. um, which provides the criteria for a child to meet the diagnosis of autism. All right. So, what are some of those symptoms? Um, There's um, developmental delays, um, pervasive things with um, speech, um, cognitive ability, social interaction are some of them, and there's a lot more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you know, this is something that uh, many, many parents, and we're going to be talking with some parents here in just a few minutes, but uh, many parents, I mean, we all have markers when our, our children are born and uh, they are a baby, you know, they're a baby and they start to grow up and, and, and that kind of thing. When should parents start to, you know, think that, uh, okay, we, we may have to uh, get a diagnosis here or we may have to get our child tested? Sure. So pediatricians are doing a lot better when they are meeting with families and going through well checkup visits to look at developmental milestones. So when a child is not meeting um, consistently the developmental milestones 
um, as they're growing, it would be concerned to have an evaluation done to see if they would fall into the diagnosis of autism. Like what? What kind of, of uh, markers? Um, some of them um, are if your child is walking and talking at the appropriate age. There may be things um, with the way they're playing or interacting, their ability to make eye contact or um, communicate back and forth, even with babbling or their interest in their surroundings, their peers, toys, things like that. Now, when you say you mentioned all those things, you listed them, uh, are you saying that there's not an interest in toys or they're not making eye contact or just what? I think one of the great things about everyone who's diagnosed with autism is that they're absolutely individual. Okay. Um, and symptoms present very differently in each child. Um, there are some children that meet their developmental milestones for talking, um, but don't have a devi- developmental milestone met for some of the social interaction that they should have. So it really depends. Um, and then as a child is developing, you can start to see what areas um, they may need support in, which would then lead into looking into the diagnostic piece of that more, and a qualified professional could give you um, a better diagnosis going off the criteria we talked about. So do we know what causes autism? There is currently um, no known cause. Okay, me a little more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a lot of speculation, but um, currently there is no non-cause of what causes autism. A lot of people have their opinion on what it may be, but currently the research does not show that there is any one thing that causes autism. But some of the factors that uh, I've learned about over the years, uh, genetic, uh, environmental, talk a little bit about those if you would. Um. So there is research being done to look into the genetic factors um, and what may or may not be um, able to diagnose autism. And then environmentally, there's speculation on the types of environment um, and contaminants and different areas where people live as whether or not that would then affect um, someone who's pregnant with autism. But there still is no um, definite to say whether or not either of those are the cause of autism. Okay, when you say contaminants. uh, Okay, if you don't know, I'll just say so. That's fine. That's fine. Let me bring Regina Wall into our our conversation. Regina, one thing that I do want to uh, bring up, and well, first let me ask you this question. Are you aware of uh, the environmental factors or some of the environmental risk that uh, Rebecca was, was talking about? Well, I think there there still are a lot of questions about what causes autism, more that we don't know. But I think the current thinking is that there may very well be, for some individuals, a genetic predisposition and, and perhaps some sort of environmental event. We have lots of very smart people who are doing that research right now. Um, but I think one of the things that is still very confounding and difficult for all of us, and for families most certainly, is not really knowing what, what caused the autism. Um, so, but a lot of really good research going on um, to try to understand that more comprehensively. As I said in the introduction, the Centers for Disease Control changed their estimate in the number of children that are uh, born with autism uh, in 2014. It was 150 in the year 2000. That was an estimate, by the way. And in 2014, it went to 1 in 68 children. Obviously, this is something that we as a society, schools, 
the medical profession, families are, are dealing with on an everyday basis. From what I understand, you have been involved in this from the very beginning with the state. How has that, sure. that increase in at least diagnosis, how has that uh, changed what we do? Well, I think what's, you know, one of the sort of the good news, bad news, I mean, the good news is with the increased prevalence, we're seeing also an increase in awareness. More uh, individuals are being affected. Um, I think most of us are hard-pressed to, to find someone who, who has not been affected, or a family member, a neighbor, a friend, by autism. So I think it's certainly helped with awareness. I think clearly uh, with the increased prevalence, though, um, you know, there's a continued need for uh, appropriate supports and services and uh, ensure that individuals who are providing the support and the services are trained, uh, who have, you know, the, the, the skills and the strategies uh, that, that are, are necessary to meaningfully support uh, individuals with autism. And also, too, there's a, there's a need for family support. Um, you know, autism, the impact on the family is, is profound. So, um, you know, the good news, we're more aware. I think there's more attention to the issue. The challenge is that, you know, there's, there's obviously a need for, um, you know, to do capacity building in the professional community and, and really work on bolstering resources and supports for individuals and families. You may have just done this, but I'll ask the question anyway. Uh-huh. What is the state's role in all this? Sure. Well, the, uh, I have to say, and, and Pennsylvania has been um, very much on the cutting edge in the area of you know, understanding autism and then responding and developing appropriate supports and services. I um, want to credit you know, the Wolf Administration for the continued support uh, and a focus on autism and intellectual disabilities. The Autism Bureau that I oversee was established on paper in 2007 after uh, a task force deliberated for almost two years to identify uh, where uh, what was needed uh, in Pennsylvania to uh, meet the needs of individuals living with autism and their families. And the report was very, very comprehensive and really mapped out uh, for myself and for my team uh, a blueprint that has been guiding us in in responding to the needs. So the Autism Bureau was established in 2007. We oversee two adult programs, actually two of uh, first of their kind adult programs, and also uh, we oversee the assert collaboratives and efforts throughout the state uh, across the system. Uh, so broad reach. Something that you something that you uh, just mentioned though, uh, when I put on. Uh, I, I had a post on Facebook last week mm-hmm. about uh, producing this show today, uh, and I had at least one person, maybe a couple others, who said, y- you know, children get much of the attention that deservedly sh- uh, so, but what about adults with uh, yeah. autism? Uh, and, you know, one of the questions that uh, has arisen is, what if an adult thinks that, you know, I've grown up with autism, and maybe that explains Mm -hmm. some of the difficulties I've had over the years. What about uh, programs for adults? Sure. Well, thank you, really, for for emphasizing that, because I think in this discussion, sometimes we 
we will, will forget that children with autism become adolescents with autism and young adults with autism and mature adults with autism and eventually senior citizens with autism. And our office, in, in our work, we, we are focusing on the needs across the lifespan and across this, the spectrum. Uh, it is a heterogeneous population, no two individuals with autism presenting in, in the same way. And we, uh, we oversee two adult programs and we have had adults who uh, come into the program who uh, are receiving services, um, some of them for the first time, and so uh, and, and individuals who are being diagnosed later in life. And you know, for some of these individuals, it's um, it's a confirmation of, of something they may have have sensed. They knew about their differences, um, their struggles, and for some individuals, it, it may come as a relief. Uh, to have confirmation and then to, to you know, find out that there are uh, supports and services and strategies and resources that can help them. What does an adult? What does an adult who suspects they may uh, be on the autism spectrum? What can they do? Where do they go? Well, the first thing obviously is to secure a, a diagnosis. That's that's critically important, and um, so that that's the necessary first step. And then an individual can certainly uh, contact the Bureau of Autism Services, the Office of Developmental Programs, to find out about the, the support and services that they might be eligible for. Uh, and I can certainly provide information um, to the listeners about how, how to you know, go about contacting the CERT in, in our office. Um, but that gets the, the, the ball rolling. Um, and um, we have seen individuals who have come into our programs um, and begin to make some real progress. And that's heartening and wonderful because I think, um, you know, there clearly is a need for a focus on adults living with autism and for families of children with autism, um, you know, to know that, you know, their sons and daughters can continue to make progress throughout the course course of their lifespan. Um, it's, it's been very, very rewarding and heartening to see um, the gains and, and the progress of many of our participants. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about autism during this portion of the program. It is Autism Awareness Month. We're going to be talking with some parents in uh, just a moment. Our guest today, Rebecca, Rebecca Mann, Vice President of Operations for NHS Education and Autism Services. Regina Wall, Director of the Bureau of Autism Services at the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services. Also joining us in the studio are Vince Porter and Pan Hammaker of Harrisburg. Their child has been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Also joining us on the phone is Megan Reardon. Megan works with the United Way in Gettysburg, and her six-year-old son, Isaac, has also been diagnosed uh, with autism. Miss uh, Reardon, welcome to the program as well. Thank you so much. By the way, if you have a question or a comment, maybe a story to tell, uh, as, as one of our guests said earlier, there's not a person out there who doesn't know someone or has been affected, families that have been affected by autism. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page 
on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, so let me talk to Vince or turn to Vince and Pam right now. Your son, Corbin, is 14. Tell me about Corbin. Okay, well, Corbin, he's a teenager now. He's, he's come a long way. Early on, Corbin was nonverbal. He had some very horrific, self-injurious behaviors, like slamming his head on the floor. No eye contact. No, I said no speech. He had, he had a, attachments to objects, like carrying rocks around in his hands. Through the years, Corbin has slowly and steadily progressed. He's, he has moderate verbal abilities extremely affectionate and loving, mischievous. Pam, you have anything to say about Yeah, Okay, Pam, what about this mischievous part? What what does he do that he's mischievous? Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, he he likes to play. He likes to tease. He's he's just really, it's it's, it's interactive. It's something that we didn't have when he was younger. He just, he he gets this look in his eye and he says, I want to play with you. I want to mess with you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's been successes and failures with Corbin. He's he's come a long way since early intervention services, public school. Now he's in the NHS school system, and and I think little victories. We're seeing them all the time with Corbin. So when he was a baby, when he was uh, you know a toddler growing up, when did you think that okay maybe he's not developing like we think he he, he should be? Well, Scott, that's actually very interesting because he was hitting all of his milestones really? up. I'd say till eighteen months, probably right around the twenty month mark, and then there was a regression where he pulled away from us. He really he didn't respond. We lost all eye contact. The verbal ability was gone. Actually, even even the food that we could get him to eat, it all changed. It was sensitivity to sounds and light. There, there was a drastic change in Corbin. And now, what age was that? It was right before two years old. Okay. We we weren't aware of autism at the time. We weren't familiar with it. We had no idea what was going on with our son. Mm. So, what did you do? Where did you go? Well, we going to the regular pediatrician appointments. Uh, I think they start. They were more aware of what to look for, and suggested that we get him tested. Mm-hmm. And that, and it's shortly afterward he he did receive a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So, as parents, what do you think at that point? <laughs> you, you you feel initially like you lost your child, or and it, it's just like you've been punched in the stomach. But, but then, then you realize that this is our child. we got to do everything we can for him. And unfortunately, the very first thing you think is, we've got to cure this. We've got to pull him out of this. Like there is some miracle cure. There isn't. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is, the, I think the, the, the hardest thing was to do was to accept him for who he is and to try to get into his world because it, with us, we, we believe autistic children learn best when you get down to their level and you, you learn from them. I, we've learned as much from him as he's taught us. Mm. So let me, uh, let, me, let me turn to uh, Megan Reardon now, who is in Gettysburg. Megan, your son is Isaac, and he's yes. six years old. Tell me about Isaac. 
Well, Isaac is uh, also very affectionate. Uh, he has a fantastic sense of humor, um, and he is verbal, and he's been, he always has been verbal. Um, I would say that one of the differences uh, is that when we diagnosed Isaac or had Isaac diagnosed, he was three years old, and we thought that he had maybe some kind of hearing issue because he wasn't communicating properly. His eye contact was fine. He was, you know, very affectionate and having, you know, typical toddler, but he didn't seem to hear or, you know, really want to communicate with us, and that's when we had um, LIU uh, do, uh, you know, uh, analyze him, and they decided that he was definitely on the spectrum. So uh, I'll ask the same question of you, Megan. Uh, What did you think at that point? You know, honestly, at the time, because they considered him to be high-functioning or what used to be called Asperger's, I thought to myself, oh, you know, he's going to grow out of this. Um, He doesn't, I can't even see how he could possibly have autism. Um, But as he grew older and there were certain things like potty training or, you know, trying to get him to have fun in preschool and the transition to kindergarten, all those things, it it really started to become apparent how much more difficult it was for him to make each one of these transitions, um, especially because I have a neurotypical daughter who's 10 years old and watched her succeed in all these things very easily. And we're going to talk about some of those challenges with both uh, children in, in, in just a few minutes. But we have a phone call here from Christy, which um, I think is very timely. Christy is in Lancaster. Christy, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. I was just calling in because my son, uh, we're going to CAD today to find out uh, if he's diagnosed or not. <laughs> and so if he isn't, what do we do? Because there's obviously some things going on with him and looking for help with that. Megan, Regina, would you like to <laughs> address address Christy? Christy, this is uh, Rebecca. There are lots of agencies um, in Lancaster County that have availability to support um, any type of issue that you're seeing. Um, if the diagnosis doesn't come back that it's autism, um, there could be a lot of other things that are going on. So I encourage you to look at one of your human services provider, connect in with maybe your local IU. Um, and if if you can't get anywhere else, there are advocates that can help you support in both the educational and the behavioral health world. Um, but there's lots of other therapies and Um, organizations out there to help work through anything that you have Um, and you can obviously um, reach out to NHS um, but also there's other people in the Lancaster County area you are not alone Um, for any of our families that are struggling um, and working through a diagnosis there is support out there. Christy can I interrupt for just one moment Uh, have you been told that they suspect that it is not uh, uh, autism or are you just, is that your suspicion? Well, he was, he, I kind of had that mother's intuition from an early age. My older son has a developmental delay. He was a preemie. And so I kind of knew something was kind of a little different with my other son, um, especially like for sleeping. He, he, he's a child that cannot sleep by himself. He needed constant touch, yet he didn't want to really be held. 
I know it sounds so strange, um, but he really wanted that. And that, that was kind of my beginning thought process because I thought, well, this just doesn't, there was just something there. He also has a speech delay. Um, he has some, um, he doesn't know his boundaries sometimes whether they're children. Um, he's really forward. He would touch strangers if we would go to the mall. Just like walking past, he'd run his fingers across them, do kind of odd behaviors that I thought, wow, most children, you know, cling to their mother. My son would wander off and not even worry where I was, what, you know, what, those types of things. What, Christy, what? Hi, this is Regina. And yeah. um, I, first of all, I, I want to really credit you for following your gut always as a mom. I always listen to that. And I would just say, um, certainly, we, there are plenty of resources that are available through the Autism Bureau should that should your, uh, your child receive a diagnosis, um, and we can get you lots of information about how to connect with uh, resources in your community. If your child isn't diagnosed with autism, though, I also want to point out there's so much that we have learned in the realm of intervention, early intervention, that can help with a lot of the areas that you've, you've identified as being challenging for your child. Uh, so the good news, too, about where we are right now is our understanding of how to support children who present with some of these difficulties has increased markedly. Um, but we can certainly get you hooked up with, with resources and information. Um, Christy, how old is your son? My son is five. He is turning six. And as, as you remarked earlier, he does get IU 13 services part, kind of part-time. Um, so he is in a classroom with other children, but he's rolling out to kindergarten. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking, come kindergarten time, you know, I use a little different kindergarten, and especially in school districts, they've come a long way. I will mm -hmm. say that. Just my older son is seven, mm -hmm. so just the difference between the two of them. But I'm still, my concern is that it will become, well, your child is a behavioral child, right. and it's not, they won't take into consideration his other needs or kind of, they want to put him in a special classroom. And I, I really want him kind of in the mainstream. He wants to ride the bus with his brother. So those concerns of kind of keeping my little family intact, but still giving him room to grow and supporting him in the way he needs, not necessarily where a, a regular everyday learner would have. Christy, I'm glad you called in, and uh, we wish you the best. And we wish, can I ask what your son's name is? Sure, his name is Mason. Okay, and we wish Mason the best. And uh, if if you need that assistance, you know, WITF, we're here for you as far as uh, providing a link to uh, the agencies and the and the help that uh, that you need. Thank you very much for calling in, and good luck. Great. Thank you for taking my All call. Right, thanks. Uh, you know, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, Vince. You know, this is obviously very emotional, and it was very emotional for Christy. Um, I kind of got a sense over here from your body language that you knew exactly what she was what she was thinking. Uh, we, we can definitely relate. Um, we really would love Corbin to be in a, a, a regular school, interacting with his peers. And I think when when we had that when he was younger, he he thrived on it. He really loved interacting and seeing all the other children circle around him and wanting to be around him was heartwarming. Now that he, <clears throat> excuse me, now that he's in an NHS school, he's getting more specialized attention, and he's doing great. But it, it really, we we do miss the fact that he has no peers or children his own age that he gets to interact with on a daily basis. Mm. So, uh, Megan, let me ask you about uh, Isaac. 
Um, what are some of the challenges that Isaac has faced as as he's growing up? I mean, he's he's you know six; he's still young. But uh, what are some of the challenges that he's faced and your family has has faced? Well, right now, currently, he's in kindergarten, and listening to everybody talk about their children and the social interactions is just it can be heartbreaking because you want so badly for your child to. Um, fit in and have friends, but as I, every day we have, you know, issues with, I hate school, um, he doesn't want to sit still, he doesn't want to be in the classroom, he, you know, every day is a report, uh, you know, of all of the things that he's, you know, done wrong, if you will, um, you know, he's he has come a long way, he has amazing days. And the thing about Isaac, he's academically, he's very intelligent. He just doesn't want to do the work. And he has a very difficult time relating um, to his peers. You know, you said earlier, Megan, what used to be called Asperger's syndrome. I didn't realize, and, uh, you know, I still saw references to Asperger's syndrome as I was. Uh, as I was researching the, the the program, maybe you can explain what that is. It sounds as if uh, what you're describing that uh, you know that's something that Isaac would fall under. You know, I, I'm not really an expert on Asperger's. I mean, I can I and I can only really describe to you what my son is like because, um, as mentioned before, each child is so different. Mm. Uh, but he. You know, he is he is highly verbal. You know, he can have a conversation with you, but it's just going to be on his terms. Mm. He he's it's going to has to be something that he's interested in. I you know I, I may have to ask him a hundred times a question about school, but if I ask him about Minecraft, then he has no problem at all. Mm. Uh, you know, and he taught himself to read when he was two years old with the iPad. So, you know, we didn't even know he could read until one day he just started reading from a book. So he's really smart. He just, it's all, you know, socially, it's on his terms. And he does seem to be, you know, like a couple years behind socially, he tends to relate to either really young children or much older children, which is very interesting. Mm. So, Vince, tell me about uh, uh, about uh, Corbin and some of the challenges that he's faced. Well, well Corbin, I, I think he's overcome a good deal of his challenges, but initially, again, there, there was no eye contact. He, he was in his own world. He, he would stand and spin in circles. He would carry rocks or toy cars around and just he was oblivious to most external contact those are his challenges he's slowly came back to us I mean right now if he was to meet you he'd probably smile at you and he'd say hi and and he would try to interact a little with you but unfortunately Corbin is I would still say moderate he's he's not high functioning but he's he's a happy kid day to day some of the challenges are when when he's frustrated, he still will hit his leg, or he's not able to express why he's frustrated. So what works? You said he's made a lot of progress. What what has worked over the years? <laughs> that, that that's, that's a good question. Uh, what works is 
you really you can't push a child with autism to do to learn the regular way. You have to keep trying until you reach them, and you have to read their body language when they're getting frustrated. You don't continue to push them. So it's I think extreme patience, and I, I sometimes it's simple things like a reward system. Hey, let's work on this a while, and then you get to do this. It, it's it's structure helps. I, I a lot of the autistic children that I'm familiar with really like a structured schedule, and then they they can look forward to okay, break time is now or or play. I, as I heard Megan say, I mean, I've he, Corbin likes computers, tablets. Mm. That seems to let them control what they're doing instead of somebody pushing them. Mm-hmm. Megan, what about Isaac? What works with Isaac? Well, I think, number one, that having a team, like whether it's the teachers or, you know, behavioral specialist, TSS, uh, which is therapeutic support staff, um, people in place that are flexible and are willing to work with you and the behavior plan that you might want to, you know, have in place, uh, that, that is so important is having people, like, Isaac's kindergarten teacher is very willing to work with uh, the behavior specialist that Isaac has working with him. Um, so that's that's really important, I think. Mm. Let's take a phone call from Daniel in York. Daniel, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Uh, I, I called in because I'm a lawyer who practices special education law and represents uh, children with autism. And I just want to make sure your your listeners understand that there are a number of federal laws and state laws and regulations which give children with autism the right to an individualized education that's based on their unique needs. And it controls not just what academics they receive, but where they receive those academic services, and it also governs how behavior needs to be dealt with. And I I heard one of your parents say that there were behavioral issues, which is not unusual at all, but the districts have a responsibility to develop a positive behavior plan and not punish a child with autism or another disability for behaviors that are caused by the disability. So they should be working with those kids to try and figure out what what triggers the refusal and uh, have an environment where the child isn't tempted to refuse. There are also um, curricula that help kids with uh, Asperger's in their social interactions. Uh, That's extremely important for kids as they get older because they don't know how to relate to their peers, but they can be taught um, what most of us understand instinctually. Hey, Daniel, I'm glad you called in. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we we have run out of time. I want to thank all of you for, for being with us, and that was some gr- really good information, timely information from Daniel as well. Rebecca Mann is Vice President of Operations for NHS Education Autism Services. Regina Wall, Director of the Bureau of Autism Services at Pennsylvania's Department of Human Services. Vince Porter, Pam Hammaker, and uh, Megan Reardon, thank all of you for being with us today. Thank you, Thank you. Oh, thank you. And, Regina, you said about some information. If you just, uh, uh, we'll get in touch with you and get that information on our website, okay? Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Ladies and gentlemen, will you please rise and direct your attention to the microphone behind home plate and welcome representing all of New York City's emergency services, New York City police officer Daniel Rodriguez, who will now sing God Bless America. God bless America. Now, I don't like to introduce or to interrupt, I should say, God bless America, but uh, the man singing that song, and uh, you probably remember it, brought chills to, to me and a lot of other people, millions of other people. That's World Series in 2001 at Yankee Stadium. Daniel Rodriguez, and uh, Daniel Rodriguez uh, is from the New York Tenors, also known to many as the 9-11 NYPD singing policeman. <laughs> Mr. Rodriguez, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm listening to that performance, and we're our own worst critics. I'm a little, a little, little under there, and uh, I'm criticizing the performance as I'm listening. Right, well, that was a long time ago. Well, here's the crowd noise, so they liked yeah, it. Yeah, they loved it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, even... 16 years later, you're criticizing your own performance. Always, always. I'm like, oh, I could have done that so much better. <laughs> well, one of the reasons that Daniel Rodriguez is in the area today is the Salvation Army uh, of Central Pennsylvania, excuse me, of uh, the Harrisburg Capital Region, Capital City Region, is having their annual event tonight where they're honoring first responders. Also joining us is the Salvation Army's Director of Philanthropy, uh, Kathy Anderson-Martin. Ms. Anderson-Martin, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Daniel, as I said, th- that moment, to me personally and millions of other people in this country just coming off 9-11. 9-11 was like a month and a half before that World Series between the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. And it just made chills go up the backs of a lot of different people. Uh, goosebumps all over. What did it feel like for you? Well, being uh, a first responder and, and having survived 9-11, having gone through that day, um, in the aftermath of 9-11, there were a lot of questions as to, you know, what's the world going to look like now, what uh, what are we going to have to deal with? Um, how are we going to get over this tragedy that we've just dealt with? And um, many people were scared. Many people trying to decide, um, you know, how we're going to um, deal with this tragedy. And then in those days, it's just I got to the stadium and it was a capacity crowd. You know, people were wondering whether whether anyone was going to come out. Um, it was capacity crowd. And the energy was just amazing. It was so electric. And it sent a message not only to the world, but as a singer myself, I felt that we're going to get we're going to get past this. This is a resilient city. This is a resilient country. And we were out there saying, determined that they weren't going to chase us into caves. They weren't going to stop us from living our lives. And that was a moment when I felt that um, that whole God bless America was the 
the, the, the epitome of what we were trying to say, we're still here and we're going to stay here and we're going to thrive. And um, I was thrilled to be a part of that part of history. Was it always God Bless America? Were there other uh, songs like uh, the National Anthem or America the Beautiful or others uh, considered? Well, I was singing um, at, I was singing the National Anthem at certain games. I was singing God Bless America at certain games. But I think God Bless America was kind of became the theme for post 9-11 um, in, in many of the games, in many of the sporting events. And so... Um, I, you know, I sing, I sing everything uh, from pop to pagliacci. But um, in those days, that was uh, that was what we was needed. And um, I had sung um, the Lord's Prayer for Oprah. Um, everything had that spiritual, uplifting, you know, let's let's charge forward feeling to it. So God bless America, national anthem, America the Beautiful, um, the Lord's Prayer, uh, Into the Fire from Scarlet Pimpernel. This is the moment from Jekyll and Hyde. These are the mo- these are the kind of songs that we were presenting in those days. Were you and are you a <coughs> Yankees fan? I am. I okay. am a Yankees fan. Um, I now sing for the for the New York Rangers. Right. I sang uh, this this week at the last uh, game, the big big game, um, where we clinched it. Um, and uh, Mom is a Mets fan. Oh, so, how'd that happen? Yeah. So there was actually a Seinfeld episode that I saw, and it was. W- it was taken from my life. It had to be taken from my life. <laughs> I was invited to sing for the Yankees and and uh, and the Mets, a Yankee Mets game. And my mom came and and um, we went and they, you know, I sang the anthem and then they put us in the Whitey Ford box and there were a bunch of guys there, just uh, college guys. And um, I called the lady, said, "Listen, mom, my mom needs a place to sit." And these guys are just a little too rough. rough. You just give us some seats in the bleachers. And I said, "No, no, we'll send someone right to right there for you, Mr. Rodriguez." And they took us up to Steinbrenner's box. And Steinbrenner wasn't there, thank God. <laughs> because when mom Owner took off, when, when mom took off her sweater, she had a big Mets T-shirt on, and so um, yeah, it was fantastic. Well, we the just, re- the reason I asked that is, you know, our listeners are saying, Scott, what, what do we care about? We, you know, what sports team? Like? <laughs> but Yankee Stadium itself, for a Yankees fan, for a New Yorker, I mean, that had to maybe make it even more special. I mean, it's the World Series. It's after 9-11. I don't know how many much more special it can get, yeah, no, but was, that had to be part of it as well. It was an amazing, amazing day, an amazing time. Yeah, yeah. New York is Yankee Stadium. You know, it's just a big part of uh, who we are, what we've been. And growing up, you know, growing up the, as, a, as a young man in Brooklyn and the Bronx Bombers and the, you know, it was just, it was just amazing. So. Talk, talk about uh, 9-11. You were uh, a police officer at that time. Uh, you were on your way to work, I understand, when uh, the planes hit uh, the World Trade Center. Um, but you were much closer after that. Well, uh, I, um, I was on my way to work. I was com- coming across the Verrazano Bridge, which connects Staten Island to Brooklyn. And um, halfway across the Verrazano Bridge, uh, the traffic got a little heavy. And and I was musing, and I, I, I saw ashes crossing the the bridge just and I thought to myself what would that be doing in the middle of the Hudson River a mid span in the Verrazano Bridge one of the you know at one time the longest suspension bridge in the world and I followed the ashes back to the direction they were coming and I saw the first tower was burning I knew I had to get to work I worked in Patrol Borough Manhattan South which covered the south side of Manhattan so my crew were, were already there um, my my coworkers had already responded they started a little earlier than I did. And there was a caravan of emergency vehicles just at that moment coming across the span. So I waved my badge to one of the guys, and he let me into the caravan. 
and I followed the caravan down to the HOV lane, which Highway had set up for the emergency vehicles down into the battery tunnel. And I remember coming out of the battery tunnel, my plan was to make a right-hand turn and go to what would become ground zero, go down to the towers. And I even had my indicator to the right. And just as I was about to make the turn, something said to me, it was a piece of police academy training, said, let someone know where you're going. When we put over our, you know, when we get into a situation, the first thing we put over on our radio is our, is our, our address, where, where we are, our, in case that's the only thing that we can get out. You're 20. Yeah, our 20. That gives us a, gives them a, a starting place. So with my indicator to the right, I made a left, and I went to one police plaza, and I let them know that I was heading down there. And um, that decision, that day, that moment, is uh, probably why I'm here, because I was a block away when the towers came down. If I would have made the ride, I would have been in the tower when it came down. So, mm. so um, I survived the day. Um, saw the tragedy of the towers coming down around us, and uh, lost a lot of friends. And um, but I was called to something higher, something greater. And it was a prayer for America that I first got the chance to sing and give the gift that God gave me, my voice, give that to a time when it was needed most. And um, that's been my trajectory ever since. You were part of uh, the New York City Police Department's uh, unit that, what was the name of the unit? that you uh, The actually, ceremonial unit. The ceremonial unit. So you were part of that beforehand, right? I, yeah, I was, I was the go-to guy for the national anthem right, for, right, for right. years before. Um, Mayor Giuliani and uh, Governor Pataki and um, even the White House had me on speed dial and they would call me t- to do events um, before 9-11. But. So uh, what presidents have you... Uh, I've sung for um, Bush, for um, the Clintons. Um, I actually sang for Donald before he became president, as he would, I would, I would sing at Mar-a-Lago and places like that, and he would come and see me then. Um, I've sung for um, Prince Rainier and Prince Albert. I've sung for um, the Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abu Dhabi. I've sung for a lot of, a lot of amazing people. But you know, it's um, that's all. That's all wonderful as as memories go. But my calling is to um, be of service, is to as 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 I did when I was a police officer, is to to serve my fellow man, to serve my my uh, my friends and family and, and my country, and and so I share the gift that God gave me, and I try to leave this place a little better than I found it. You know, you wanted to be a musician growing up, right? And now, have you been reading the tabloids? Because uh, uh, you know there was a story in the tabloids that I started singing after nine eleven. No. That, no, yeah, the sto- I, I don't read the tabloids. Yeah, the story said that I woke up one morning after 9-11 and I was yawning and was like, ah! and I said, you know, maybe I should do something with this. So, but, <laughs> Oh, that's not true? No, no, no. Just, just, just wanted to clear that up. <laughs> it is New York, by the way. <laughs> but you grew up wanting to be a musician and then you uh, had several jobs before going to the police academy and becoming a police officer. Well, I started, I started singing professionally when I was 12. And I made my Carnegie Hall debut when I was um, 17, 16 at, at, at the, the studios in Carnegie Hall and 17 at the bigger hall. Um, and then I started a family when I was 20, had to t- music had to take a back seat. And then uh, I had six years in the postal service. I worked six years as a postal worker. And Did you after, sing on your route? I was a singing, I was a singing mailman yeah. before I was a singing policeman. Oh, but, but after six years in the post office, I was ready to get a gun. <laughs> 
<laughs> now that should be in the tabloids. Yeah, that's. <laughs> and I became a New York City police officer <laughs> at age thirty. I was thirty years old when I started in the police department, and uh, I think I think the age was a big de- was a big um, benefit because um, you know what's needed most in in these types of jobs, police officer, firefighter, is common sense. So I had a little more common sense as an older police officer, and and I think I served um, my city very well. Mm. Uh, you know, going back to Seinfeld. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you were the Newman of... Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Hello, Rodriguez. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so let me bring uh, Kathy Anderson Martin into uh, the conversation. Kathy, this is the kind of stories that uh, you're going to hear tonight uh, for the Salvation Army's event. Oh, yes. I got a little pre-taste of this waiting to uh, be in the studio here with you, Scott, and hearing Daniel sing. And I am very, very excited for what he's going to do in um, his voice. Just listening to him, I can't wait. And uh, just our ability uh, to come together and honor. We'll have about 50 first responders there with us in the audience and kids from our youth program. So uh, quite a diverse audience and a great opportunity. I can't wait. Why first responders? Well, the Salvation Army has a history of service and serving those who serve our communities, so it made sense. But we also just appreciate what they do for us day in and day out. And um, you know, they put their lives on the line, whether they're entering a burning building or um, you know, stopping traffic to respond to a car accident or the police officers who protect and defend us. So uh, it's only natural that we take just these few moments tonight to honor them and to have someone like Daniel to share his story and uh, you know just relate it to everyone else it's it's we're, we're very pleased to do this for those who may want to uh, celebrate service that's a uh, celebration of service is uh, the theme for uh, tonight uh, it's in Camp Hill uh, some information for someone who may want to attend Yes, um, it is at the Radisson Hotel Harrisburg in Camp Hill. Um, you can still order tickets by contacting our office in Harrisburg at 233-6755-717-233-6755. Um, we'd suggest that you do that sooner rather than later uh, or to call this morning, uh, early afternoon, if you'd like to come, listen to Daniel, and help us celebrate those who, again, serve us. Uh, kind of cool thing before the event, we'll have about 25 kids from our Salvation Army Youth Programs doing a Pathways to Service workshop with local um, Harrisburg City Police and Bureau of Fire and Penn State Hershey Medical Center and Dolphin County Crisis Response. So really, it, there's a lot of things going on that are good things that you can be part of by uh, purchasing a ticket and coming out to see Daniel perform and um, celebrate with us. All right. So, Daniel, we got about a minute left. Uh, perform. What are you going to perform tonight? Well, actually, I'm going to be speaking as uh, uh, my story, telling the story of 9/11. I'm going to be um, doing showing a video that we recorded um, in post 9/11 um, for a um, uh, project that we call Finding 9/12, and it's a tile memorial that was created down in um, down near Ground Zero. And I'm going to be singing um, to where you are to that video that we rec- that we uh, recorded. Um, God bless America, the national anthem, and maybe one or two other things. Uh, not sure, you know, off the cuff. Could you do <laughs> one in twenty seconds or less, or just twenty seconds? God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her 
and guide her through the night with a light from above. Well, Daniel, I I think the windows are rattling here, but uh, Daniel Rodriguez, thank you very much for being with My us pleasure. today. Thank you. And uh, Kathy Martin, or excuse me, uh, uh, Kathy Anderson Martin. Kathy, always good to see you, and you, uh, I hope everyone has a great time tonight. Thank you so much. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to talk about crime victims. Also, I have a conversation with Arun Gandhi, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, about peace.